We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have Janneke Ritchie on the program today. Yannicka is an entrepreneur, speaker, designer, and digital transformation expert. A robot mama, she brings both passion and a healthy dose of realism to how robots, AI, and future technologies can be used to transform how we work, live, and age. And in this episode, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but I think the most important theme from our conversation is about how to be a learner in a digital age. And that is very important right now as many kids are struggling through that. And we pick up this conversation as I just told Yannicka that my daughter has been editing my podcast for the last little bit. And so uh, that's where we're going to jump in. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Yannicka Ritchie. Because one of the, the reason I wanted to to pop it, like to bring this in is is that as as I'm so my season one of my podcast where I'm looking at the realities of taking really business digital, um, and I've had a broad range, but there were some themes, and one theme that I specifically decided to pick up for season two is digital learning. 
And as I think about that, it's not just um, because of some conversations I've had with some people who are part of uh, giving me some advice. I thought my focus was going to be digital learning for, let's call them non-digital natives, people like myself, basically born um, before 1980. It's not quite as well-defined as that, but let's call it roughly that. And the challenges of how to design learning experiences using these uh, modern technologies for a future where we're going to see great acceleration in technology and how difficult that is when you are a non-digital native. When I was speaking to um, one of the people who's helping me with some of my projects, and she is, she's probably 29 and is very digital, very much a digital native. She's like, oh, you know what we should do, Yannicka? We should also include some where you're talking about the experience of being a digital native and how difficult that can be. And so as you talk about your daughter, and and how we can partner, I mean, you're not as gray-haired as I am, but the partnership between young guns, <laughs> young guns and the gray hairs, I think is so rich and powerful and really can enhance, you know, the experience for all of us moving forward. So I just, yeah, I thought when you tell me your daughter's doing it and also the realization of how much not in informal learning is going to be a part of our future. And the way that we can be resilient and and really thrive in what is no longer going to be a linear learning experience. Um, so critical. So I'm thrilled for you that your daughter is helping you out with it. It's super cool. And it's such a great skill because I think I might do mine a little bit differently than yours. But my podcasts are stories and highly edited. So I have an hour and a half of of interview or hour, hour and a half of interview. And I make 16, 17 minutes out of it. So that's, there's a lot of editing in that. Yeah, there is. Well, I want to address a couple of things that you mentioned. One of which is this idea of digital natives versus digital non-natives. And that has always been a pet peeve of mine. I, I really despise it when we refer to things that way. I'm not attacking you. Don't worry, Annika. <laughs> but, that's okay. I'm, 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 I'm up for the discussion because I've been reading a lot about it. And I'm at a loss as to what else to use, so I'm using it as a short, as a uh, as a shortcut. So, but please, absolutely, tell me what you think and and what you think I should be calling it. Well, you know, I don't know that there's really a name, but the way that I differentiate the two between digital natives and digital immigrants, or whatever the phrase you're going to use is, is that those that we as old people typically refer to as digital natives are people who really just are not afraid of breaking stuff. And I think that that's the biggest descriptor between the two camps is that the older generation or people who are not digital natives, they are afraid they're going to break something if they do anything with a computer. And those who are younger and what we typically call digital natives, they're not afraid of that. And they'll just jump in and do things because they, I think, kind of believe they can't break it, that it will be able to be fixed by someone or somehow if they were to do something, but they, you know, the, the way that they interact with technology is different than how I grew up interacting with technology. You know, when I was a kid, we had this K pro computer in my house and it was this big, huge monstrosity and it was very, very expensive. And, you know, to do anything, you had to put in these big, like legal size drives into the computer to make it do anything. And it was very possible to break it because you're doing everything in DOS and you had root control and you could, you really could, 
make cause some major problems. But, you know, with kids and, you know, iPads and Chromebooks and, and other technologies, um, even laptops, they, they typically don't have that root access, don't know how to get into terminal and do kinds of things in there or into the prompt and, and be able to change things. So I really think the big thing for me is that they're just not afraid of breaking it. And the rest of us are. And, and so it's not that they are because they don't really know how to use the device and they don't know how it works. And so if they're digital natives, then you would think that knowing how it works would come along with it, but they, they don't know how it works. They don't understand what file systems are and what root access is and where things are stored. And and that's one of my big concerns with that term is that we're, we're calling it something and assuming a level of proficiency or ability when that really doesn't exist. They're just not afraid to break it. What are your thoughts on that explanation? So I don't agree that you can't break tech. So maybe that's where one of the foundational differences is. They may feel... Wait, let me let me just sec. I, I don't think that you can't break tech. I think what, what I'm saying is they think that you can't break tech or they aren't afraid of breaking it. I think that's the distinction. I th- so so a couple of things. First, let me deal with the one. I'm I'm kind of with you that I don't love the terms either, and I hate digital immigrant. I think that doesn't make. I I understand it from sort of a an it's a, a sort of an academic like term because I believe the research that it came from isn't research at all. It was just kind of a philosophy that um, the man's name what is it something with a p anyway um, came up with. I don't. It was not research based. It was just sort of here's a useful kind of term. Um, so digital immigrant is, is problematic for me, which is why I'm right now still at digital non-native, non-digital native rather. But I also understand and accept that that what I'm calling a digital native is uh, there's a big a, a spectrum of capability within that segment. And I'm really using it, as I mentioned, as sort of a short term, a short form, some quick way to land people in a framework, even though there are clearly problems with the framework. In terms of whether they're afraid of breaking things, I think that's true. It's not clear to me that's very different from kids. Like, I don't know how afraid I was of breaking things either when I was their age. So it could be a function of age. They also don't have that much to lose. I mean, they don't have, you know, uh, bank accounts with significant amounts of money in them. They don't have, uh, in my case, for example, financial files that I need to keep on hand for the next, like, like my ability to get into trouble if I lose my data is a big deal. And so, and I've done it. Like, yeah, I can lose it. And losing it includes not knowing how to find it. So, um, so I think that that, that makes it a, a difference. I do not have the same expectation that what I'll now call digital natives, although, like I say, we should come up with a different term because I need something. Because we all know that there's some kind of a divide here. So I'm just trying to call it something that doesn't require a lot of explanation, even though for sure, as you dig under the covers, it's not a great term. But the uh, where I think that there are some differences, though, if I may, is is in one area, is in our expectation that we know we can know things or put differently, we can know enough to do what we need to do in our own heads. And I did grow up in, a, in an era, I'll fess up, I'm 53. Um, so I'm a Gen X, probably one of the oldest of the Gen X, but a Gen X all the same. And grew up at a time where 
I could research my way through pro- project problems and I could know probably, I had an expectation that I could know things in my own mind. And one of the big differences I see with the, the uh, let's call them digital natives or like younger generations is that because of the extraordinary explosion of information and access to information, there's not an expectation for them that they know everything. They immediately go looking in a different way than I observe myself and others of my generation and older looking for new information. So there's an expectation of knowing, of of being knowledgeable that I think is different. And that is based on um, a, a... uh, and the experience with a, with digital with digital like the experience with a digital world. So let me comment on that real quick because I think that that's a really key point. And it gets to when we talk about digital learning, what that digital learning looks like. Because in as you and I were in school, the learning was focused on acquiring and retaining information and facts, and that stuff is is virtually pointless right now because almost always you're going to have something there to help you. Now, certainly there are times where you don't you're not going to have that resource and you do need to memorize certain things, you do need to have a deep understanding of things, but for the most part, certainly anything we would be teaching in school anyway is really going to fall into that category of we can just look this up. And, and I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we talk about what digital learning looks like in the future. Absolutely. I take uh, several years ago, I took a course on coding, um, not because I was going to be a coder, but because I wanted to understand how coders worked. Like, what was their process? Because I did see in them a scenario that looks a little bit like that. What I saw is that the process that I that was uh, that I saw happen is there's a certain skill and capability and we can call it knowledge but it's it's less information based but than it is sort of conceptual based but there's some foundational set and after that they work with repositories the game starts to become being able to find like identify what little nugget you want and then going out to find what's that little piece I need as opposed to fitting the whole, putting the whole together and having a picture of the whole. It was a really different kind of, if you like, expertise development than what I had seen in my history. And uh, and I think that that's a very fundamental shift. And I think it's the shift that people in, um, that you're going, there's going to be required to be, if I can turn digital learning upside down, to be um, a, a learner in a digital age. Like if you want to be, relevant in the future this year, like not, maybe not this year or next, but in the next 10, 20, for sure. Well, I don't know if I need to worry about 30 years, but whatever, 10, 20 years that, and, and, but it isn't like, it's so far away that it's irrelevant for me. Like if I want to be relevant over the next 10 years, 15 years, which is very likely that I'll still be around for, these are skills you must have. You must learn. The other part that kind of goes with that, I think, is that it's it's the nothing is solid in a digital world. So the way we do, we don't have the durability of paper, and so even when you change that, I think affects even the mindset. For example, of what I bump into and what I've heard from some other people is like fear of speaking online. I don't think the kid, my kids, don't fear that. 
But as when I talk to people more of my generation, they're like, but I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm like, don't worry about it. No one's looking at it. Like it's, it's there and gone. It's there and gone. It's not paper. It's not there for the rest of time. I mean, it kind of is in a weird combination. So that is mentally something that you really have to work on. That's a paradigm shift. And it goes like, it's kind of, now I'm going to make a leap. So, you know, you can stop me if you don't like it. But it's kind of like why we don't need the Dewey Decimal System anymore. There's no single place where the book or the artifact exists. And so it can be accessed from any perspective, any place. And that is a fundamental shift in in thinking, I think. It's a paradigm shift that is required to and will be a part of digital learning that is very different from traditional learning models. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's so much to unpack there. So let me just take a couple stabs at, at a couple things. So about the Dewey Decimal System, there only needs to be a categorization of things so that you can find it. And the Dewey Decimal System does not make sense. It's confusing and kids forever have never understood why it's set up how it is. Librarians totally do, and that's great. And I was in charge of libraries for a 42 school district earlier in my career. And, you know, there was there was always debate about how to find everything and where it was. And we went and toured the University of Utah Library, and they have this automated, huge book retrieval system where you say what you want, and then the robots go out and get it and bring it back to you. And, you know, this was a decade, more than a decade ago. And it was amazing to see how how precise and, like, exact that was and how much easier that was than going and finding the book yourself. And so it, moving into a digital space, when you take that idea of not having a physical location for something and it's all out there virtually – all that matters is how you can find it again. And with search being as effective as it is most of the time, then it's really easy to retrieve that stuff that you need. So another aspect of that, of so I, I really like to read. And when I was younger, I could open a book and I could, I could remember that a quote that I liked or a chart was on the left-hand side of the page, on the top or the bottom half, and... I could recognize how far into the book it was. I, you know, I was like somewhere in the first fourth or something like that. And that's that's a skill that that is quickly losing relevance because I'm not reading paper books as often as I used to. Most of my books are I'm reading on the Kindle. And there's no way for me to remember where it is on the page or anything like that. And I have to go to the retrieval. So it's changing my skill set from remembering where in the book it was to what keywords and phrases will find that if I search for it again later. And and that's a different way for us to process and learn information than what we may have been exposed to earlier in our lives. What I love about what you're saying is that I that now what you're talking about touches on something that can worry me a little bit because I don't have a lot of experience with how young, you know, the younger generations are are learning and the kinds of skills they're really coming out of education systems. Well, I have two children, so I have a sample set. Well, maybe, and I have a, a daughter-in-law, so maybe I have a sample set of like three and a couple, but not any kind of breadth. What's not clear to me is how that, uh, let's call it, how the salient nugget retrieval happens 
when you don't have the physical contextualization to add, increase the sensory experience of finding that nugget or knowing where that nugget is. And what is problematic for me in a digital world And what I talk about when I talk to people about robots and why robots seem to be so interesting for us, even though they're not very strong yet in terms of interpersonal, but they do represent, they are a physical manifestation of the digital ecosystem around us. And as humans, we have almost no ability to interact with a digital digital ecosystem. Our senses don't necessarily engage unless we make it happen. And so, and that makes part of our, like, we still learn a lot through our senses. So the fact that we're taking those away, I think is, means that digital learning has to sort of explicitly reintroduce it, even though it's not maybe required. I'm not really sure yet how that's going to play out. We'll see, I guess. But you probably have thoughts on that. Like, how are kids doing that retrieval now? Well, and I I think your point about the retrieval as it relates to multiple senses is, is very powerful because that's what I didn't recognize or, or articulate well as I was explaining is that I was remembering how it felt, where it was, and, you know, what I could see. And and it's different because, you know, when I'm searching through Kindle books, I'm just remembering specific words or little, as you said, salient nuggets that, that mattered to the topic that, I, that I'm looking at. And, and that's where, you know, being able to engage multiple senses in things. So in education, they call that total physical response. And that's a great way for people to learn a second language so that you have hand actions that go with every vocabulary word you're trying to learn so that it's more than just you remembering what that word is, but you're remembering what it feels like when you say it. And 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 those are, are different ways to, you know, to, to cement that learning and make it happen, but it happens by combining multiple senses. And that doesn't really, that doesn't really happen with, you know, reading a digital textbook. There's, you know, when I circle or highlight or underline something in a physical book, then I can remember that. I can remember the color and the sensation and the feel and all that kind of stuff. And, and I have experience with that. And I can think of different books that I have done that with, and I can re- recall what those things felt like, but you can't do that in a, in a digital format unless you, you know, are really making a concerted effort to do that, but you're still going, you know, a, a page on a Kindle is the same for every book you ever read. <laughs> you know, it doesn't ever change at all. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says Stop Talking and Start Doing with Regard to Teacher Well-Being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com 
slash transformative principle. So, so there's got to be some other way to do that. And I don't really know. I don't, I don't even have any ideas of how we could, how we could make that connect in a, in a better way off the top of my head. I, I don't, I don't know either. I, what I anticipate discovering as I go through what will be sort of a research project around this digital learning is I will, I will be looking for, let's say artifacts from a traditional learning method process that persist or, or perhaps would do well to persist. So for example, whenever we pick up a new medium, we always keep some aspects of some elements of an of older media as well. So we're still reading paper books, even though there's TV, even though we can talk to each other on the phone, we still write letters, even though we can, you know, so so there's always sort of a remnant. This is one that is problematic. That's why I'm I'm curious, like what are kids doing now? Because because or how do you how do you do that in a purely digital way? In my case, I have a an iPad with an Apple pencil. And I purposely handwrite things because the the motor, the physical experience of writing long form is more rich in a sensory way than keyboarding because like this feels the same as, the, you know what I'm saying? And so I purposely write longhand when I'm trying to unpack ideas because I need, I almost need to interrupt the speed of thought is what I'm trying to do. And it's, it's, I spent a little bit of time looking at expertise and development of, of high, uh, high performance and expertise and kind of making a distinction between ex, uh, high performance being proceduralized and expertise having some element that gets interrupted so that you can actually think about the thing as opposed to just doing the thing. And, and it is in that where you can inject more expertise, like the expertise really and, and sagacity really starts to show up. And, and so when I am, I, I have taken now to picking up physical books again for two reasons. One, cause I just don't want the, you know, uh, the interruptions, I like to annotate my books now. It was it's new. To, it's not new to me anymore. It, it's probably about twenty years old now that I've done it. But when I was a kid, I didn't do it because books were sacred. Now I just think of books are are just is my almost my collaboration with the author. So I'm like writing all over them. It's another notebook with words in it already. Exactly. It's exactly. Exactly. It's another notebook. But I have a tabbing system, but I do it really thoughtfully because I know that if I pay attention to it, it will enter my mind in a different way. And I've also discovered that for me, in many, many cases, the value is in doing that the first time. I don't necessarily have to go back very often because then it becomes part of my own mind and I can use it. Where I'm going to be really curious to see how digital learning or how learning in a new age where it's heavily dependent on technologies, modern technologies that are digital, is how we get all of that information into the mind, because the big plus for me versus sometimes my, what I, you know, could be the case of my kids is it, because I have these things in my head, like some of that knowledge that you talk about, we don't actually have to go and get it, but because I have a lot of it, it has the ability to figuratively bump into each other in this noggin as opposed to me having to go find it and find it and find it and then put and then synthesize. So there'll be a real question for synthesis. Do you have ideas or observations of how strong the synthesis process is for people now? 
Well, I think that it goes to the idea of creation, that you you synthesize things when you make something else from that. And that's what I fear we are missing a lot of in our current educational system, especially with coronavirus, because I feel like there's a lot less creation. There's much more regurgitation from what I've seen, from from things I've seen on you know, Twitter to to what I see teachers producing for their students, I, I see a lot more going back to that rote memorization, regurgitation, and a lot less creation and focusing on on doing something with the information that you've gained. And and that's where I feel the digital world that we're living in allows for much more creation than it did in the past. And and we're able to create something from nothing very, very quickly. And so one of the things I started doing uh, a few weeks ago was um, creating these Instagram stories based on the podcast interviews, um, working with someone who uh, wants to you know, be in advertising and he's interested in, in helping promote my work and trying to figure out a way to do that. And what I didn't want was to, you know, go through this long, laborious process. So I learned how to use Motion and Final Cut Pro to create this this story that I could then export and send to him, and then he could publish on Instagram Stories. So it, that's that's all to say, like I didn't really get the skills that I needed to until I started creating those stories myself. Once I started doing that, I learned several different things in Motion and in Final Cut Pro to be able to make that story. And and here's where I'm going to tie it back. You were talking about the writing and the underlining being, you know, like that's where the work happens and the work doesn't necessarily happen later. And so for me, I've I've taken courses on Motion. I've taken courses on Final Cut Pro. The things that I needed for this project did not matter until I actually needed to do the work myself. So when I came to the point where I needed to create something, that's when the skills stuck. Before that, I mean, I've I've watched hours and hours of videos on Final Cut Pro and Motion, never understood how to do what I wanted to do until I actually needed it. And as soon as I needed it, then I was able to do it right away. And And now I remember how to do it and I don't, I feel like this is one of those things that I'm not going to forget how to do because many other things in my life, ever since I got finished my master's and and stopped taking official coursework, I've learned it all the same way. I've had a problem and I found the solution. And once I know the solution, then I, I remember how to do the thing that I need to do. What I love about what you're saying is a couple of things. Number one I'm so with you that the game is producing or creating or, you know, uh, practicing is really what I'm talking about. You need to practice. I had exactly the same experience when I started um, doing my podcast. I didn't know anything. I think I told you, I didn't even know what a session rate was. I couldn't open a file. I didn't know anything at all. Um, And I YouTubed my way to being able to make it. And I would not have gotten anywhere if I just took a course. In fact, it's probably even so much so there is no course that could have taught me because the things you need specifically, it's a mishmash. I'm the, like, I've learned how to do this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very, I'm, I'm a, I'm very good at using technology. I'm not that 
I can't troubleshoot it all that well, but I can use it really, really well. So I understand. I'm like, oh, I get it. I need this. I go look for the thing. What's the thing? Now I know the next thing. Then I go and find the next thing. And now I can podcast. And I could never have had a course that would teach me the way I wanted to podcast. So there's a hyper-personalization that occurs here that you need to be good at yourself to be able to create your own learning paths in order to really learn the things you want. The part that I think is really interesting that we're starting to touch on a little bit is in this area of, um, in terms of learning. And I, and I, my emphasis does tend to be more on the older age group. So, I mean, I might start probably at university, but not before that, but I'm specifically very interested in people who are kind of, you know, 40 plus who really have more steps to make is that the emphasis becomes on the skill because what I was describing when I'm taking notes, that's knowledge. That's me understand. That's not, there's no skill involved with that. That's just me taking in facts or ideas or things that need to roll around my brain so that they bump into each other completely. It's, it's not the same. I'm totally with you on skill. And I think it's particularly in the skill space that we're going to see really different skills that are required. And what you describe is absolutely one of them. And this, I love, this one brings us right back to at the beginning of our conversation about things breaking and worrying about breaking. And if we are just a little bit different in our definition of breaking, then to include the breaking of our sense of self, of our persona or, you know, profile out in the big bad world, that is the thing that I think, again, there, you know, our young guns are not as worried about breaking it, probably because it's not as durable yet. It's probably not as easy to break. There's not as much there. Whereas, you know, with our gray hair, we have we have something and we have a sense of self. And that is something we have to get much more fluid on how that's going to evolve and allow ourselves for me in the case of podcasting is like, I have to be okay with putting a really crappy podcast out. It is important to be okay with not having a perfect product, which I think is, is a good place to start. I think about my very first episodes of this podcast and your episode 363. So I've done 362 before you, and it's actually a little bit more than that, but that that first one was was pretty awful i'm not going to lie and the microphone placement was bad the recording situation was bad and i've grown and developed a ton since then the questions i asked i don't think were that great i couldn't have a real discussion and and all that and and you see all these flaws that you have but the important thing was that i started somewhere and then i was able to move and grow and become better and what i fear that we that we struggle with is that we want it to be perfect like the other person we saw right out of the gate. And that's never going to happen. You have to start at where you're at and then find a way to get better as life goes on. And and that's not always easy. And I think that that is a, another barrier to what, what we're doing, that we're afraid that it's not going to be perfect because we're really good at the other stuff. And now to do it digitally, it's not perfect, and therefore it's not as good. And that's honestly not the truth. It is 100% one of the biggest hurdles. And it's also one of the critical skills that we need to continue to practice. The only way to get good at something is to first be bad at it. 
It's the only way. You don't, I mean, you do your best. You do your best. Like I'm sure your first episode was you tried your best. Like you didn't, you didn't say, oh, well, to heck with it. I don't care. You try your best. It's just not going to be the best you ever do in your lifetime, probably, if, unless it, you stop right there. It's very difficult to learn that. And it itself, what that practice is a practice unto itself. And so the more you practice doing what I call, it's the short for the, the acronym is SFD, but I'll for, for this purpose, I'll call it the crappy first draft, but that's not what the S stands for. And as soon as you allow that to occur, you set the stage for growth and development. And it's an extraordinary journey if you can tolerate the ambiguity of not knowing where it leads exactly and the humility of not being great at at it. But I think there's something absolutely extraordinary that can occur when you bring expertise in some domains and then start to explore other and start to combine that or introduce those into domains where you have no expertise. That cross-pollination is powerful stuff. Yeah. I, I recently learned about a woman, I can't remember her name now, but she was a artist before, and then she started producing digital art and she had skills and everything before, and then she started doing it digitally. And then she could start teaching people how to do it because they could see what she was doing because she could record her drawing step by step. And so that's how she became successful is she started taking pictures of what she was doing at different steps and showing the progression and then sharing the the videos of her doing a time lapse basically of what she was creating and it was just it's just amazing what what she could do now with the technology that she couldn't have done before and and I think that idea of the the crappy first draft that you mentioned that is that is also something that we just need to get over and move on from and and it's it's hard because you want it to be nice and you want it to be good but whenever somebody talks about trying something new instead of like taking a course on it i say just do it and see what you get and then once you've tried it then you can start looking for courses that could help you but going back to what you said before there really isn't a course that can teach you exactly what you need to do in in most situations that matter because it needs to be hyper personalized for you and that's where i think the real the real key that we need to have is understanding ourselves and how we learn and what we want to do with that knowledge. And so, you know, I I went for a while just basically taking a template of what somebody else had created and trying to replicate that for for something that I wanted to do. And I realized that that doesn't ever work because their template is built for this specific purpose. And what I need is this purpose over here and it doesn't line up. So even though I have the quote unquote secrets of how to do it, I still need to do it in my own way for my own people in the way that they need to hear for it to be effective. And otherwise it's just not going to work. You can't just copy somebody else wholesale and think that it's, that it's just going to work because they, they had different motivations. They had different ways of doing things and you can't, you can't just steal it and think that it's going to work. However, you should steal lots of things and copy people and do what they do to see what does work with you. But again, that goes back to how it is that you're trying to learn and understanding yourself well enough to know what it is that you want to accomplish. And that is an interesting 
topic in a, you know, area as well, because I distinctly remember when I got my first job in advertising and I was an account executive and I used to write strategy papers and all kinds of things from, for my, my clients. And I had come from my university and I'd written an undergrad thesis in political communication. And so that was like, I don't know, a hundred and some odd pages or something like that. And I remember really struggling with the idea that when I was in the business world, I could copy paste things because I'd gone through my education where it's like, no, 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 it has to be new. It has to be, that's plagiarism. You can't do that. And then all of a sudden you flip a switch. And now I'm like, go nuts. And I, no one explained it, but I did figure out, I'm like, oh, of course, this is a corporation. Corporation owns everything. It's not plagiarism because it's all yours anyway. So just knock yourself out. But that did take some, some work. And, and the kind of the thing that went with that is as you describe, and as we do our various podcasts, you obviously much further along than I is is there's no right here. You know, when I, when you, we grow up or I, I did, I don't know how it is now when you're at school, but, but you know, I took a lot of math because you could get it right. And so you could copy something like what you describe as a, you know, I'm going to learn it over here and then I'm just going to apply it and it will be right. Like that was something we experienced. That was how we learned to learn. I had a little more room probably with my thesis and it got a little bit roomier when I got a little further, but, or, but, but even then there was kind of, there's a formula and it says this and there's, and you and I, I mean, I don't know, there's still a formula. These, a lot of the podcasts, there are formulas in the podcast, but they're only the structures they're not the the detail and that doesn't give you the process which is really a key component typically and that also is different i don't know how i mean that's probably going to now i'm probably leaning right into your space of of why education needs to transform because that's just deadly that's not we can't do that yeah and it's not going to help anybody be prepared for anything because that those skills aren't useful if we need people to just you know, copy and do something else. That's what robots are for, you know, and, and that's what they do really well. That's what computer programs are for. That's what they do really well. So we don't need to recreate that. So Yannicka, this has been a great conversation. I think we could probably talk for at least two more hours (laughs) about this stuff, but we're going to go ahead and close it down. And my last question is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal? I think one thing a principal can do to be a transformative principal this week is to do something new and to find a way to share how you've done that new thing with for sure your colleagues your your the the people on your staff and if you can if it's right for you maybe even with your students and show how to do new and what that process looks like and that 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 is a lifelong process that sounds wonderful i want to thank you again for being part of transformative principle if people want to follow you on twitter they can go to uh, at yannicka ritchie and that's j-a-n-n-e-k-e R-I-T-C-H-I-E. And there are links to uh, what we talked about and everything in the show notes at jethrojones.com slash episode or slash podcast slash episode 363. So thank you very much for being part of Transformative Principal Yannicka. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks, Jethro. It's been a blast.
Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash principle. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.